1: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York.
3: And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York. This week on the show, we're talking about how dirt became a crucial driver in the evolution of life and diversity on planet Earth, what happens to our planet if our solar system is visited by another star, and why dolphins may have the same electricity-sensing ability as sharks.
2: Plus, we'll meet some very sleepy little penguins.
3: But first, it's that most magical time of the year. Yes, you got it. It's climate summit time. On Thursday, COP28 opened in Dubai, and a record 70,000 people representing nearly every country in the world are expected to attend at some point across the two-week meeting. They'll take stock of how well the world is slowing climate change and debate a slew of issues from how to pay for climate-related damages in low-income countries to the future of fossil fuels.
4: The science has spoken. It has confirmed That the moment is now to find a new road. A road wide enough
5: for all of us, free of the obstacles and the detours
3: of the past. That was COP President Sultan al-Jabba. Our reporter James Dineen, he's been following the lead-up to the meeting and will be at the summit next week. But while we still have you here in New York, James, could you just give us a bit of an overview of the basics?
6: What is COP28 and why does it matter? Sure. So COP28 is the 28th conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on climate change. I know that's a mouthful, but (laughs) it was created in 1992 as a forum for the world to deal with human caused climate change. These summits happen every year in different host countries, but this year's choice to host it in Dubai has already caused some controversy. The United Arab Emirates is one of the world's biggest producers of oil, and so people are questioning whether the fossil fuel industry will have too much influence. But the meeting may yet lead to some really important action on climate change. Some have even called it the most important summit since the Paris Agreement in 2015, when countries adopted the basic targets needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius.
3: That's quite the comparison. It feels like that 1.5 degrees Celsius is such an iconic figure. What makes this year so important?
6: Yeah, so one big reason this meeting is different from Previous summits is because it's the first time countries will formally take stock of progress on climate change since that Paris Agreement. We've already seen the main findings of this exercise come out, and they clearly show that despite some progress, the world is far off track from meeting the Paris targets on everything from cutting emissions to financing climate adaptation in low income countries. And at COP28, countries will try to come together to decide how to respond to that stark picture. And that will really set the agenda on climate change for years to come.
2: Yeah, we have this assessment of how much progress we've made, but what can they really do and respond to that picture? What what might they
6: do? A number of things. There's a lot of momentum building for countries to agree to a target to triple renewable energy capacity and to double the rate of energy efficiency gains by 2030 which on their own would go a long way to cutting emissions. At the same time, there are some battle lines forming between countries pushing for strong language on phasing out fossil fuels and other countries who want to keep open a place for fossil fuels even as the clean energy transition proceeds. So expect sparks to fly there and on other issues.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I imagine there are some very big feelings on both sides of that division, especially with regards to fossil fuels.
3: Feels like there's certainly a lot for us to be watching with this cop and lots of potential sticking points. What's the feeling ahead of it? Should we anticipate a strong outcome or resolution or are people already thinking it might be
6: a bit of a damp squib? Well, (laughs) damn squib, wow. Well, there has already been a big advance. Right at the opening of the summit, countries agreed to key details on a loss and damage fund to help low-income countries pay for climate-related damages. There was some concern that this issue could reopen and torpedo other issues in the negotiations, but it looks like there's agreement there from the outset. So that's a good early sign. But more generally, based on conversations I've been having with researchers and other observers, I'd say feelings are mixed about what might happen. There's a lot of concern about fossil fuel interests shaping the meeting. That's been true since the UAE appointed the head of the country's largest oil company as president of the summit. And on Monday, the BBC published a story based on leaked documents that seemed to show the UAE had planned to use meetings with countries at the summit to help secure oil and gas deals. UAE leaders have strongly denied that was ever the plan, but that has definitely injected some cynicism into what might come out of Dubai. Then again, there is really strong momentum among countries for things like tripling renewable energy and slashing methane emissions that really would make a difference for tackling climate change. It bears repeating, too, I think, that all this is happening in the context of what was almost certainly the hottest year on record and a year of climate extremes from unprecedented wildfires in Canada to record low sea ice in Antarctica. We can expect that weighs on negotiators over the next two weeks.
3: Thanks very much, James, and good luck in Dubai. We'll check back with you on COP progress in the coming weeks.
2: And now, a surprising ingredient to maybe everything you love about planet Earth, dirt. New research has found it's surprisingly crucial to the story of how life on this planet evolved and how many different kinds of life evolved. News editor Jacob Aaron is here. Jacob, we are truly here to talk about dirt today.
5: Yes, dirt, or more specifically, soil. This is a piece from reporter James Woodford in Australia, who wrote about new research on how plate tectonics and continental drift have shifted the flow of sediments around the world. And this in turn has had a surprisingly strong impact on ancient biodiversity.
2: All right, take us through it. How'd it go down?
5: Well, researchers at the University of Sydney in Australia created a computer model of how Earth's land masses have shifted over the past 550 million years, using data on ancient precipitation, fossil and sediment records, and tectonic plates. Running their model, they found that the first 100 million years or so, rain mostly washed nutrient-rich soil into the oceans, driving a boom in marine biodiversity, but leaving life on land fairly barren.
3: So what actually changed? How did dirt start to stick around a bit better?
5: About 400 to 300 million years ago, supercontinents began to form, allowing large volumes of soil to build up on land and letting life there flourish too. For example, it was around 150 million years ago when flowering plants began to peak because they finally had thick enough soil to put down roots. And this link between sediment flow and biodiversity is surprisingly strong. When regions saw a fall in sedimentation due to something like volcanic activity or drop in rainfall, biodiversity fell within a few million years as well.
3: That's so fascinating. It does make me wonder, aren't we, humanity, having a big impact on sedimentation right now? And I think about all of the erosion farmers are worried about specifically.
5: That's right. Human activity has massively disrupted nutrient flows and degraded soils. At the same time, we know that we have big problems with biodiversity and species dying out. This research is showing that changes in the location and quality of soil can change the course of evolution for millions of years afterwards, something that we're probably doing today.
2: You may have noticed something new in your New Scientist podcast feed this week. We kicked off a special three-part series on the complex, controversial plant known as cannabis.
3: Our reporting team has been working for months to uncover where weed came from, what we know about how it affects our brains and bodies, and how our relationship with this plant may change in the future.
2: And if that sounds really groovy to you, then take a listen. We start with the story of the plant itself and how it came to be the world's favourite leafy green.
3: And coming next Tuesday, the TV show Lessons in Chemistry has been highlighting some underappreciated food science, so we thought we'd bring you some of the tastiest we could find too. Editor Sam Wong talks to Pia Sorensen about engineering the perfect cheese sauce, the chemistry of day-old pie crusts, and how to harness helpful bacteria for delicious fermented foods.
7: It really doesn't matter
4: if you are a world-famous cutting-edge chef or if you're just cooking and kind of tinkering in your kitchen. Anytime that you're kind of manipulating a recipe, you are doing science, you're playing with science, and really you're sort of an experimental scientist
2: in your kitchen. Plus some festive Scandinavian foods that you might, or maybe might not, want to try at home. That's all coming next Tuesday, right here.
3: Dead Planet Society might be on a holiday at the moment, but Leia Crane is here with a story of research that asks a very Dead Planet Society-like question. What happens to the solar system if another star wanders too close? It might sound a bit like an unusual scenario, but this is a thing that could actually happen, and new research has looked at a variety of possible outcomes if it did. Hi, Leia. Hello. So exactly how li- likely is it that we would see a visiting star Come our way,
4: they're not very likely, <laughs> but it's likely enough for it to be worth asking the question mm. over the course of any billion years. we have about a one percent chance that another star gets within a hundred astronomical units of our solar system, and an astronomical unit or an aU is the distance between Earth and the sun. so for scale, Neptune's orbit is about thirty a u pluto's about thirty nine
3: yeah, All I can think of now is that meme that's like, so you're telling me there's a chance? <laughs> <laughs> there is a chance. <laughs> so there's a, there's a slim chance that this could happen. And if it does, what would then happen to everything else in the solar system?
4: So it depends on a lot of the details of the flyby, how big the star is, how fast it goes by, at what angle, exactly how close, and so on. But this research team ran about 12,000 simulations to try to answer the question of what happens. And the most likely outcome, like 92% of the time, is that nothing happens, all the planets stay in similar orbits, we see a really bright thing go by, everything is fine. The next most probable outcome is that there's a 2.5% chance that Mercury's orbit gets messed up and it crashes into the sun. And then around the 1% probability mark, you have things like Venus hitting another planet, Mars falling into the sun, or Uranus or Neptune getting ejected from the solar system entirely or all the planets could get ejected. And there's also some very unlikely scenarios where the star could just steal one of our planets and take it with.
2: Just go on an adventure. (laughs) That sounds incredible. (laughs) I do notice, Leia, you haven't mentioned one planet in particular, and that's Earth. What are Earth's chances of disaster here?
4: (laughs) Earth mostly does okay. Again, in 92% of scenarios, everything is fine. If well, Earth is... yeah, It's all going to be okay, guys. <laughs> but if Earth is destroyed, it'll probably be from collision with another planet, probably Venus. But there's only about half a percent chance of that happening. We could also get chucked into the sun, even less likely. And at really, really small probabilities, you might see us ejected into interstellar space, captured by another star, or yeeted into the Oort cloud super far away from the sun.
2: Alright, I have to ask, now that I'm filled with some slight anxiety about the next billion years. Why did the research team start looking at this in the first place, Leah?
4: So actually, they weren't looking to see if the solar system is going to get destroyed. They were seeing if a passing star could potentially save us. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Save us? What? How? From what? <laughs> is this Godzilla again? So as you may know, the Earth is doomed. Oh, yeah. The sun is evolving and eventually it's going to expand and cook the inner planets in about a billion years or so. So these researchers were actually trying to figure out if a passing star could push Earth into a cooler orbit and keep it habitable for a while. And it turns out that's extremely unlikely. There's about a one in 350 chance that if there is one of these stellar flybys, Earth will end up in an orbit that's at least 10% cooler. Unfortunately, it's actually more than twice as likely that we end up in an orbit that's at least 10% hotter. So again, do not panic. By far the most (laughs) likely outcome is that nothing happens.
2: So we don't get the Hail Mary from the flyby, but we also are probably fine for a billion years. Exactly. And probably the
3: flyby doesn't even happen.
2: Probably. All right, did you know that some animals have the cool ability to sense electric fields? It's one of my favorite animal facts, and it turns out that bottlenose dolphins can do this, too. And they may even use it to hunt or even navigate. Our reporter Chen Lai has the details. Hey, Chen. Hello. So sensing electric fields sounds like a really fun superpower to have, maybe top five on my wish list. But is it as impressive
7: as it sounds? Well, like you said, quite a few animals possess this power, which is called electroreception. So it's not particularly rare. It's more common in aquatic animals such as sharks or even platypuses because water is a really good electrical conductor. But it's definitely a very useful skill to have. Sharks, for example, can detect the faint electrical signals in the bodies of fish, which help them home in on their unsuspecting prey with pretty good accuracy. Yeah, it seems like it would be really hard to hide from
2: a predator who could sense that, Uh, you know, if my body is just giving out electrical fields. Mm -hmm. So why did researchers think to look at dolphins specifically for electroreception?
7: So when they're born, bottlenose dolphins have whiskers along their snouts. And as they grow up, these whiskers fall out, leaving behind these deep open pits in the skin where they used to be. Inside these pits are cells that look very much like the electric field-detecting receptors found in sharks. So
3: let me just stop you there a second. So dolphins, they can sense electrical signals via sort of weird skin holes?
7: Yeah, it sounds really strange when you put it like that, but exactly <laughs> <so>. <laughs> To confirm that the botanose dolphins do in fact sense electricity, the researchers enlisted the help of two dolphins living at Nuremberg Zoo called Dolly and Donna. In a pool, each dolphin rested their head on a metal platform and was trained to swim away if it sensed an electric field, which was generated by copper electrodes. If they responded correctly to the stimulus, the dolphins would be rewarded with fish.
3: So what did they then find out?
7: Well, thankfully, Dolly and Donna were both able to detect electric fields as weak as 5.5 microvolts per centimetre, which is much less than what a typical fish that can generate electric fields would produce. And Donner, in fact, could detect even weaker fields. The team also found that the dolphins reacted to alternating fields, which simulated the pulsing electrical signals that could be given off by fish in nature. And this ability, like for sharks, could help dolphins search for prey buried in sediment. The researchers also suggest that they could even use the same ability to sense the Earth's own magnetic field, which they may use to navigate through the ocean. Go dolphins!
3: Amazing. I would (laughs) like that superpower myself too. Christy, how many hours would you say you sleep at night?
2: Well, to be honest boss. uh, I suck at sleep. I'm lucky to get seven and I'm pretty much always hitting snooze on my alarm clock.
3: Well, I've got an alternative approach for you that you might (laughs) like, and it comes from chin-strap penguins in Antarctica. What they do is they manage to get 11 hours of sleep per day, but they do it only a few seconds at a time.
2: That sounds like terrible workplace behavior. Uh, (laughs) Are are they just constantly nodding off? Because I I would be.
3: Uh, Effectively, yes. So I should specify that this comes from observations of penguins while they're guarding their nests, so not their everyday situation. Mm-hmm. And it's where one parent might get left doing this, guarding their nest for several days at a time whilst the other parent wanders off to feed. And the solo parent, well, they will then doze thousands of times per day. Wow. If instead they just went on extended sleep, that mm-hmm. would put their chicks potentially in danger from predators And so the longest that they actually stay asleep is up to about four seconds at a time.
2: I feel like this is advice I should send every single parent, I know, (laughs) but that doesn't sound necessarily very restful. Like if if I were a person doing this, it, it doesn't seem like I would feel very good.
3: Yeah, I don't think I would either. But human beings, if we're very, very tired, we sometimes nod off for just a few seconds at a time. I know I've certainly done that. But These penguins, they do appear very successful at both breeding and foraging, and so researchers suspect they are actually getting sufficient benefits from their very, very tiny naps, and that maybe sleep can be a bit more flexible than we think.
2: Okay, cool. Well, how would you like two million crystals?
3: Uh, Yes, please. Is this one a story about that huge Christmas tree that they've just put up outside our office?
2: In fact, no. Here we're talking about chemistry, where a crystal is a solid material whose atoms are arranged in a regular, repeating pattern. Some of them are very shiny, if you think about things like diamond or various, again, shiny minerals. But we've only actually identified 48,000 of these inorganic crystals in labs. That 2 million number comes from an artificial intelligence model from Google DeepMind. It's actually just a prediction of how many configurations could exist in stable forms meaning they're not going to immediately break down into some other structure.
3: Okay, so here we're talking about predictions. How many of those are likely to actually be real?
2: Always a good question to ask with artificial intelligence, Tim. There is a way that they could check their work, though. Teams in materials labs are also on this quest to predict and make new kinds of crystals. And the DeepMind folks basically just used what they were already doing to check on their model. So in recent years, researchers have successfully made more than 700 new inorganic crystals that were also predicted by this model. There's even one team that used an autonomous robotic lab to create 41 of those, though there have also been some misses, like crystals that were predicted but couldn't actually be made. But overall, the DeepMind team says their AI may be more than 70% accurate, and that could save materials scientists time and money on their own predictions which may also be good news for industries that could benefit from new materials for batteries, solar panels, or even
3: just car parts. OK, Christy, have a listen to this.
2: Sounds like water?
3: It's tea, actually. And researchers have solved a problem, really, you didn't know that you had, which is how can I pour tea as quietly as possible?
2: Right, because when I think of tea, I think of obnoxiously loud things. (laughs) So they managed to reduce the sound of liquids sort of, what, bumping up on other liquid? That's what's loud there?
3: Right, though more technically, since this is fluid dynamics physics we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. we're talking about noise that happens when you get a cavity in the liquid that's already been poured into the cup. And those pockets of air, well, they become bubbles that then collapse, which creates a lot of sound. And you're more likely to get these cavities if your stream of pouring tea is uneven or it has bulges in it.
2: Right, that makes sense. So we need a nice even stream, no bubbles. I feel like the answer to this is just hold the tea kettle as close to the cup as possible.
3: Yeah, that's actually a common misconception when it comes to tea pouring. So when you pour water out of something, there's a distance below the nozzle at which your nice smooth stream will start to break into droplets. And what the team found was that the tea poured most silently when the nozzle was at the height above the cup about a third or less of this drop forming distance. Hmm. But the distance varies depending on loads of factors, including the shape and diameter of your nozzle, how smooth it is inside, and it will be different for every teapot. And if this sounds like a completely random, useless story to you, I should add that knowing what shapes of fluids make what sounds does have practical applications. Like, for example, we could potentially use it in reverse to monitor people's blood flow, or even household plumbing with sound alone.
2: That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on.
3: Plus, if you like the great stories we're bringing you, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We love talking about all of this, and we love hearing from you too. We'll be back next week, but that's bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by
4: OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.